This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Nyla. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Boodoo with Axios. It's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. Presidential history is made on a picket line in the space of two days. Striking auto workers are courted by President Joe Biden and Donald Trump, who left his rivals to fight it out on the debate stage in California. Every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. You've gone and you've we helped China build, make medicines in China, not America. Me. We can't trust you. And we've got other battles to catch up on, an impeachment inquiry and a not guilty plea from our leading Democratic senator and his wife, and a huge lawsuit from the government that accuses Amazon of using its power to inflate prices. Our guest this week from Vice News, Deputy Bureau Chief and host of Breaking the Vote, Todd Zwillick. Hi. Zoe Clark, political director at Michigan Radio and co-host of It's Just Politics. Hi, hi. And HuffPost reporter Arthur Delaney. Hello. Let's start with the death reported earlier this morning of Senator Dianne Feinstein. She was the oldest member of the Senate, its longest-serving female, and the longest-serving senator from California. Todd, Arthur, you both covered her. Yeah, for many years. Many, many years. And you just saw her as recently as yesterday. She voted. So this, this is very sudden, if not totally shocking. What a career. Um, elected six times to the United States Senate. Her first election in a special, I believe, in 1992. And then she came back a couple years later and started winning cycle after cycle after cycle. Um, After an already remarkable career on the city council in San Francisco, mayor of San Francisco, people might remember her from some pretty extraordinary periods in American political history too, including the tragic death the murder of Harvey Milk in his office in San Francisco. It was Dianne Feinstein from an adjoining office that discovered his body when um, city councilman and gay activist Harvey Milk was murdered uh, in San Francisco. She was she was involved in that horrible episode. And, and then a remarkable career in the Senate. Um, and Artie can talk a little bit more uh, about some of her contributions, I think, the ones that people will remember the most are the assault weapons ban of 1992, uh, which lasted for 10 years and, and was, I think, if you asked her, the most important contribution legislatively. And I, I think one of the most important ones was the, the authorship and the release of the Senate torture report. After the war on terror, this this was when Dianne Feinstein was the chairman, the chair of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, fought for five years, basically. This was not a popular thing that she was doing. It wasn't with a lot of senators, I'll tell you that. It was popular with no Republicans. It wasn't popular with the administration. She fought the Obama administration tooth and nail to get the Senate torture report, as it's now become known, uh, released. And it detailed for the American public many of the things that we now sort of take for granted, that we know about um, American abuses post 9-11 and the war on terror, including 
waterboarding, torture of detainees, extraordinary rendition, the euphemism enhanced interrogation, how how CIA contractors and operatives not only tortured but then lied to Congress to cover it up, um, contravened uh, orders and regulations with authorization from others in the agency. Um, it's thousands of pages long, so I'm giving it short shrift, 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 but an incredible contribution and one that I think is very, very important to the country and also became a movie, The Report, which you can go see. The and- assault weapons ban lapsed after a decade, but it remains Democrats' top priority for gun control, albeit one that they recognize is out of reach legislatively just because of the way the Senate works. But there's a, an assault weapons ban reintroduced uh, by Democrats every year and one that passed the House before Republicans took over. Certainly, we will hear more remembrances in the coming days. Zoe, what do you want to weigh in on in terms of your initial reaction to this news? Well, I mean, everything that we just heard is just this dynamic history of a dynamic politician that spanned decades. And I think the disappointment for some or the sadness for some is what's happened over the year as questions about her you know, mental acuity has sort of risen to the forefront and in some respects sort of taken over what a historic legacy that she has. You know, Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom will appoint a a temporary replacement. Uh, The senator had already previously said she was not going to run in 2024. And so there is already an election, you know, sort of going on right now for that seat. And and unfortunately, again, sort of her name became uh, synonymous over, you know, months and really the, the past couple of years when we talk about sort of the age of Congress and the aging of Congress. And so I'm glad that we have this this moment to be able to spend some time talking about what really was a a historic uh, person in American politics. The other big story in Washington is that we're now hours away from a partial government shutdown. Todd, there has been an effort by the Senate to avoid what many think is inevitable. Where does that stand? It's inevitable. (laughs) Hmm. Really, that's where it stands. The Senate is right now, both sides are going through what amount to pro forma exercises to pass a bill to show the other side that they have a way out. So the Senate has a way out, which is a bipartisan kind of status quo continuing resolution that would keep the government open, I think, until mid-November. Critically here, it includes $6 billion for Ukraine, which is one of the critical disagreement points uh, between a right-wing faction of MAGA Republicans and the entire rest of Congress. It's a little broader than that. I'm being unfair. It's more than just the the sliver of the faction, but the vast majority of of Congress is for this. And then on the House side, uh, uh, another bill that's in play that may or may not get to the floor that I think slashes spending by 30%. Legislatively, it's a joke. It's it's not anything that's that the White House would ever sign or or any Republican appropriator would ever consider or any Senate Democrat would ever even um, consider reading. So all of this is pro forma and we're headed to a shutdown. Um, And then the question becomes not only when does the government open back up, but it also becomes how does Kevin McCarthy survive? Does he have to use Democrats not only to reopen the government, to get Democratic votes to pass something – probably some short-term spending bill that keeps the government open. Um, And then if he does that, how does he remain speaker? Does he become the leader of some kind of coalitional house in a fractured age? Is that sustainable? There's a lot of corners to go around here. Ultimately, a a bipartisan bill has to pass the House. I guess it does, Everything we're doing, they're, they're supposed to vote on their CR this morning. We'll see if they do. And if they do, if it passes, looks unlikely. The Senate's passing a bipartisan bill that is 
more like what ultimately has to happen. It's up to Kevin McCarthy for the government to shut down and for how long the shutdown will last. And the consequences for him, we've known about this all year. And so has he. So it's really a Kevin McCarthy shutdown. We've really known about this since it took 15 votes to get him to become speaker. One of the conditions of that was we will allow you to become speaker. I'm not speaking in the voice of Matt Gates and other right-wing Republicans. But we have a motion to vacate where only one of us has to bring it up. A motion to vacate means your job, buddy. And we've known this. We've known this ever since he had to make those promises to become speaker. Just a note. So CR continuing resolution. The government funding I know. bill. I, just, I'm, everybody, I'm, I know. I want everyone to understand what everyone says in Washington. That's what they say. CR. It means funding bill. <laughs> That's Arthur Delaney, a reporter at HuffPost. We're also with Vice News' Todd Zwillick and Zoe Clark, political director at Michigan Radio and co-host of It's Just Politics. And you, you can join the conversation by emailing us 1A at WAMU.org. We just got a question from Jay. What is the current perception of who's to blame for the shutdown? It seems like it wouldn't happen except for the actions of a small group of extreme Republicans. Zoe? Yeah, I mean, we have to note, right, that all uh, because a group of folks who represent about 2% of the U.S. population are holding this up right now. And and this is where the politics come in, you know, that there's there's exactly the, the policy and, and what, uh, you know, we know this far group uh, of, of right uh, Republicans want, although I'm not always sure that they know exactly what they want at any given moment in time. But that's where the politics come into play and how you're trying to push this. The White House is pushing the narrative, of course, that it is the Republicans' fault. Polling seems to show uh, that it's still a little early to tell. But, you know, for I think most folks who aren't following it as closely as Todd and Arthur and folks who are in D.C., it looks like politics as usual. You know, this is going to be the fourth shutdown in a decade, the past three happening just in the past five years um, so it's sort of this question of, is this the new norm, particularly in divided government? And and folks don't like it. Who is to blame? I mean, I think as we're talking about, we know it is a group of far-right Republicans, again, who don't seem to be able to articulate exactly what it is that they want on any given day. So, Todd, you mentioned Florida Congressman Republican Matt Gates. He told Fox News he wants to keep the government open, but... The way to fund the government is not the same way we've been doing it since the mid-90s, where it's one up or down vote on the entire government all at once. We should have separate, single-subject spending bills. Kevin McCarthy promised that in January. He is in breach of that promise. So I'm not here to hold the government hostage. I'm here to hold Kevin McCarthy to his word. And of course, as we've been talking about this week, the Senate approved a measure that would keep the government funded through mid-December. But the frustration with the House has been palpable. Here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Every approach House Republicans are pushing are partisan. Every CR has been aimed at the extreme hard right. Look, I don't want to give the Speaker any advice about how to run the House. We're going to concentrate on trying to do our job here in the Senate, which I think is to pass a bill that keeps the government open. That's advice. Uh, that's advice. I mean, that's <laughs> Mitch McConnell giving you, advice. Also, he's like smiling and giggling when he said that. You couldn't hear it, but he's, yeah. Of course that's advice. All right, this is why we have these folks in the room. We'll have more from our guests in a moment. The Roundup is just getting started. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. 
It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. Let's get back to the news roundup. As we approach a shutdown, the impasse is already having an effect. According to The Washington Post, the Biden administration has started to ration federal disaster aid. It's delaying the delivery of about $2.8 billion in grants, so money will be available in the event of a crisis. What other impacts? There's sort of, I think everyone kind of lays out the immediate impacts pretty quickly here. But what are we thinking about what programs are at risk if Congress doesn't come up with a deal here? Artie? National parks will close. In the in the past, in the recent most recent shutdown, they were left open. And you remember hearing about trash being strewn through them and uh, uh, wildlife being damaged. That The Biden administration just said they're not going to let that happen this time. They'll close the gates. Uh, there are social programs that will eventually run out of money, depending on how long the shutdown goes, including a nutrition program that helps uh, pregnant women and nursing mothers buy food. And that's a, that's a major one. And uh, you know your your basic services from Social Security, Medicare, and the IRS. You know your your phone calls may not be answered the way they would have been if the government remained open. But it's important that a lot of stuff stays on autopilot, like the checks keep going out from major programs like Social Security, and a lot of federal employees are essential and don't go home. So it's it's not like the lights completely go off. So, some are essential and some aren't. It's true the lights don't completely go off. The military is still, you know, militarying and and doing drills. They're prepared. Critically, I will say that one government function that is essential that won't stop is the prosecution uh, of criminal indictments and criminal defendants. And Donald Trump has made clear that a shutdown for him was the last way that congressional Republicans can help him shut down the investigations against him. Um, Aside from being a corrupt request, that won't work because a Jack Smith special counsel prosecution will continue. So so that's important. I, I think more broadly than the specifics of a government shutdown, they do happen every few years and they're never good, it, it is, is when you step back and look at the broader implications. Uh, we just went through a bruising fight over the debt limit, which has real market, real world um, implications. And every time this happens with either the debt limit or a government shutdown, it sends a signal to markets not just here in America, but worldwide, about governance, the stability of governance, and the reliability of U.S. government. And none of it is good. So it affects, people will tell you, a slow, steady erosion of confidence in U.S. governance and finance, which can can affect bond ratings. We saw that directly with the debt limit fight. Government shutdowns don't affect bond ratings directly, but indirectly, they absolutely do. We have a question from a listener, from Charlie. Uh, Todd, I'm going to have you handle this. The country is $33 trillion in debt. Why are the people who want to get our out-of-control spending under control being labeled the extremists? Uh, They're being – well, because they are extremists on many, many dimensions, um, there are many, many Republicans who want to get spending under control and that's not new. So I don't think when they're labeled extremists – it's on the dimension of necessarily wanting to cut spending. But demanding a bill, for instance, that's on the floor now that cuts government spending by 30% in a bill um, overnight is a meat axe. And I, I think the extremist label comes not so much from let's cut government spending. That's 
pretty standard politics. I think the extremism comes from the willingness and the desire for disruption, hostage taking over the debt limit, um, interfering in criminal investigations, demanding shutdowns, things like that. They're pursuing a legislative strategy that won't work, that they've pursued before and we've seen not work. There's no plausible way for them to achieve the spending cuts they're asking for with the strategy that they're undertaking. And so it doesn't it's 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 extremism in the sense that it's just causing chaos. Nihilism. It's it's, it's about it is there there's a nihilistic component. It's about arrogating power for themselves by getting attention and taking down their leader in the house. One last shutdown question. Zoe, what path do you see for Speaker McCarthy to hold on to his job here? Ooh. That is between McCarthy and his caucus. I mean, he is between a rock and a boulder and a hard spot and a jagged edge. But I mean, he's done it to himself, right? And the question, of course, is if not McCarthy, then who? I mean, as of yesterday, tensions between him and his sort of, you know, biggest bet noir, Congressman Matt Gates, don't appear to be getting any better. And that is why this feels so full of tension because these two things, you know, this possibility of a government shutdown and McCarthy's power are so hand in hand right now. On Wednesday, seven presidential hopefuls took to the stage in the second Republican debate. And for the second time, former President Donald Trump did not show up. It was the night of clashes. If I may you can't be on both sides. Gentlemen, you'll have your... And call-outs. Donald Trump hides behind the walls of his golf clubs and won't show up here to answer questions like all the rest of us are up here to answer. He put $7 trillion on the debt. He should be in this room to answer those questions for the people you talk about who are Can suffering. That was former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who took a couple of swipes at Trump during the debate. It took place one hour after Trump's rally with auto workers in Michigan. The former president went after President Joe Biden and electric vehicles. He wants electric vehicle mandates that will spell the death of the U.S. auto industry. You know, it doesn't matter. I watch it. You're negotiating a contract. You're all on picket lines and everything. But It doesn't make a damn bit of difference what you get, because in two years, you're all going to be out of business. You're not getting anything. Zoe, the former president spoke at a non-union auto parts factory while union auto workers continued to strike. This speech came after President Biden joined the picket line on Tuesday. What is can you can kind of share us in terms of the importance of remind us of Michigan and these voters and this industry in the 2024 election? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start with Donald Trump, who was, as you note, at a non-union parts supplier. Uh, I got to give a shout out to the Detroit News reporter who spoke to a couple folks in attendance, one person holding a sign that read union members for Trump. um, And he asked, are you a union member? And they said no. Another sign that said auto workers for Trump. He then asked that person, were you an auto worker? And they acknowledged that they were not. So per usual, this is sort of, you know, a a stage for the president. And as we've talked about many times, counter-programming to this second debate. Um, But as you mentioned, I mean, it was doom and gloom. Um, You know, of course, there is going to be an auto industry in two years. The issue is this push towards EVs in the auto sector that, you know, Democrats like President Biden, like Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer, 
are are pushing for. Um, you know, what's really interesting, though, of course, is the endorsement for the UAW right now. And Sean Fain, the president, the new president of the UAW, is someone that, you know, the Biden administration particularly has not worked with before and are just still trying to figure out sort of what he is all about. So there's this question of the UAW endorsement in a state with 16 electoral votes that matter. Trump, of course, won the state in 2016. Biden won it in 2020. And it will be up for grabs. And a big part of that are, you know, union workers and union votes. So we we heard a lot of anti-EV rhetoric during the debate. Can you help us understand what the stance is here? Well, so the the issue is that electric vehicles take fewer people to make. And so there is a concern that during this push towards EVs that is happening, that fewer people are literally going to be making these cars. And instead, the jobs are based more in a knowledge-based economy. I was uh, at the Detroit Auto Show just a couple weeks ago. And I mean, some of the things that they're talking about that cars are going to be doing in the future, right? Like normally we think of like, oh, flying cars and stuff. But I mean, this is just some like amazing detailed things. And the degrees and the knowledge that it's going to take to do that, you know, the dashboards and what cars are going to be able to do. And so it is a dramatic change in what is a huge industry, you know, in Michigan, but across the Midwest. And of course, you know, compelled by the fact that conversations about unions right now in our country are a big deal. You know, Gallup polls show that for the first time in a decade, we see uh, uh, folks feeling more closely aligned with unions. We had the strike of, you know, the writer's strike, um, SAG-AFSTRA. So it's all sort of at this boiling point and coming together. But here in Michigan, it's about these votes and about these jobs and what the future of manufacturing and the, you know, the auto space is going to look like. Uh, I want to go around quickly and just ask debate takeaways. Let's start with you, Zoe. What was the most interesting thing for you about the debate on Wednesday night? Um, I mean, when you could actually hear the candidates talking... (laughs) Instead of talking over each other, I mean, it's really hard to watch these debates because in some respects, it feels like you are just watching, you know, for second place, right? You you had, again, Donald Trump here in Michigan. And so instead, I think voters are watching these candidates, but, but watching for what? Are you watching for a cabinet position? Are you watching for VP? I thought what really was interesting out of this night, though, was more folks sort of taking on Donald Trump. I mean, we know the Chris Christie's, you know, using the Donald Duck line for the first time, I think, on stage uh, on Wednesday night. But it was interesting to note um, that it didn't necessarily this time feel like they are running to be another Donald Trump. But then it's like, so what are you running to be? Todd, debate takeaways? Surprises? Uh, uh, No surprises, frankly. I was struck by a couple of things. There was some substantive policy debate, but where the policy went was really, really shocking. And I think we have a tendency to blow it off because, oh, it's a, you know, it's a contest for second place or none of this matters. Donald Trump is ahead by 30 points. But you watch these debates and if you're professionally obligated to do so or you're a political junkie, maybe you tuned in and it pays to to take in the, the tenor and the direction of the policies that are being advocated so that these people can – what are they doing? They're trying to popularize themselves and raise their stock with the Republican base. So what does the Republican base want according to these politicians who were, who were marketing themselves? Uh, a question about 
parental rights when it comes to transgender youth got morphed into a national ban on gender-affirming care. Um, there were calls uh, for national abortion ban to bomb Mexico, essentially attack Mexico and invade their sovereignty to go after drug cartels. And it went on and on and on and on. And you kind of blow by this stuff as though it's not extraordinary um, in, a, in a presidential debate. And I thought it was. And I thought it was also extraordinary in what wasn't discussed. I get, I think we all get why a Republican primary debate on Fox News doesn't necessarily want to talk about uh, 91 criminal counts against the front runner of their party. And Brett Baer in the first debate had to drag it out of the candidates over the objections of the audience as they hooted and hollered to talk about it. But there were no questions on it, no mention of it, no mention from any of the candidates who want to try to increase their stock in comparison to Donald Trump, no mention at all. The fact that he is indicted 91 times as, a, as an accused felon, no mention that just this week he went on social media and implied very strongly, in fact said, that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff should be executed. Now, that's a showstopper. That should be a showstopper for Republicans who've always been pro-military, and it was like it never happened. Every time I hear you, I feel a little dumber. That, that's what... Why, Nick, thank you. <laughs> that's what Nikki Haley... You were waiting to roll that He was looking at me, out. by the way, when he said that. I just <laughs> Not me. That's what Nikki Haley said to Vivek Ramaswamy, and it was the burn of the night. And uh, I, I think the, the substance of it is, is like what Todd and Zoe said. They were a little meaner to Donald Trump. You know, complained he wasn't there, but basically they're all Trump sycophants, I, I guess, except for Chris Christie uh, and Doug Burgum, but... It's, it's, that's just not what's being discussed at all. Let's move on to the former president's mounting legal woes. To your point, Todd, on Tuesday, a New York judge found Trump and his company liable for fraud for inflating the value of his properties and net worth. Trump's lawyers said they would appeal the decision. What else do we need to know about this ruling? Now, th- this, keep your eyes on Monday because the rest of this is going to trial. It's a little complicated, so let's simplify it. The judge gave summary judgment. That means we don't even need the rest of this trial. I can decide this The evidence is basically so clear we don't have to waste taxpayer dollars or lawyers' time with a trial. And the bottom line here is that uh, Judge Argonon in New York found a persistent uh, and recalcitrant pattern of fraud over many, many years at the Trump Organization on behalf of Donald Trump, his two adult sons, Alan Weisselberg, who just got out of jail uh, in April, and other people. Now, the upshot of this is that Donald Trump's right to do business in the state of New York revoked as of now revoked his business charters. He owns many, many entities through the Trump organization and shell companies and lots of different entities. So it gets complicated. Those entities as of today revoked. They can't do business in New York. Now the question becomes, what does this mean? And in fact, there was a hearing on Wednesday where Trump's lawyers and the judge, actually nobody knows what this means right now. They, they asked the judge, what does this mean for 40 Wall Street, which is a skyscraper Donald Trump owns in, uh, in the southern tip of Manhattan? What does this mean for Trump Tower? Does he have to sell? Does it go to receivership? What about these other properties? Does he have to sell Mar-a-Lago? The judge basically said, uh, great question, not sure. We'll figure it out. On Monday, they go to trial basically for penalties. $250 million to remunerate the fraud is what New York AG Letitia James says this is worth. And then – We're going to find out more. And this is on appeal. You stipulated that. We're going to find out more about what this order actually means for just how fast the Trump family has to get out of New York. 
Where does this rank in sort of all of the other legal things that are happening with the Trump? That's I feel such like a good it's question. so hard to keep track of all of this them. Gigantic. I mean, where does it rank? I guess it depends on your point of view. Um, it's not a criminal charge. He's not going to jail for this. But I think for Donald Trump, it ranks near the top because this is about his money. This is about his business reputation. Michael Cohen, the disgraced uh, former lawyer and fixer, goes on TV. He now hates Donald Trump and always says the way to get to Donald Trump isn't through any of this rhetoric or calling him an authoritarian. The way to get to him is through his wallet, his business. That's what this does. $250 million and up, and he might have to sell his properties. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. But when we return, we'll discuss the latest on the SAG-AFTRA writer strike and some space news. Stay with us. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the news roundup. New Jersey Democrat Bob Menendez met with his Senate colleagues on Thursday, one day after being arraigned on federal bribery charges. More than half of the Senate Democratic Caucus has called for Menendez to resign after allegations he used his influence to benefit the Egyptian government and business associates. Democratic Caucus Chair Pete Aguilar spoke to reporters on Wednesday. It doesn't bring me or any of us joy to say uh, that he should resign, uh, but he should. For the betterment of the Democratic Party, uh, for the people of New Jersey, it's better that he fights this trial um, outside of the halls of Congress. But it would be best if he if he resigned. We got this question from Jan in Florida. Since Senator Menendez has refused to resign, what can Democrats do to oust him? He needs to go. Arthur? The Senate could expel him. But it would take a, a two-third supermajority vote, which they're not gonna they're not gonna do that. That would be really extraordinary. Uh, most Senate Democrats have said he should resign. I uh, I think only John Fetterman of Pennsylvania has said uh, he should be expelled. That he would that Fetterman would support expulsion. They wouldn't even expel Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz after January sixth. So you know it, it's it's like convicting Donald Trump in impeachment. It's extraordinary and, and not going to happen. So if Fetterman wants to stay, they'll be stuck with him. And notably, also, no no Republicans that I'm aware of have called for Menendez to resign. They seem to be um, kind of relishing this moment because it does threaten to muddy the waters. Corruption is a big part of this next election because of the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump. Um, and 
uh, Republicans are trying to muddy up that issue with their impeachment inquiry of Joe Biden, having Robert Menendez stay in office. It's just remarkable that um, I'm Artie, is there a single Republican that's called for him to step down? I'm not aware of one. I, I know that Kevin McCarthy initially suggested, but not a senator. Menendez. No, and, and, and McCarthy said he should, and then reporters are, well, what about George Santos? Right. Who also faces federal charges. Right, and, but and so he's there lies the problem. They should right. both have their day in court. Is and what so, he referred Tom, to. but to your point about mudding the waters, Zoe. How big of a headache is Senator Menendez for Democrats right now? Yeah, he's not just a headache. He's a migraine because every time you're talking about this, then you're not lobbying it back at Republicans about a government shutdown, you know, and you're not talking about the ridiculousness of a George Santos, which, again, you know, on the opposite side, you had some Democrats sort of doing the same thing, like kind of standing back and being like, that's your show. That's your circus. Those are your clowns. So that's not shocking. But this is absolutely not what Democrats want to be talking about or being asked about. And yet that's That's what's going to continue to happen. Let's move to legal news for President Joe Biden. Yesterday, House Republicans held the first impeachment inquiry hearing of the president. The focus so far has been on Hunter Biden's foreign business ventures. Artie, you were in the room. Yes. And what was so remarkable uh, is that as soon as we got the prepared testimony from the Republican witnesses, it was clear that even they did not think Republicans had enough evidence. That's stunning. These are the witnesses Republicans asked to speak to buttress their case for impeaching Joe Biden. They have said he's guilty of crimes and should go. They, they speak about it like it's m- much more of a slam dunk than it really is. And these witnesses weren't willing to go along with it at their own hearing. Well, I'd like to sort of take the impeachment scenario and game it forward a little bit. This is just an inquiry um, so not an official impeachment. And there's a lot of there's a lot of doublespeak around this process to make it sort of not real, right? It's just an inquiry, just asking questions is essentially the position of House Republicans right now. So that the hearing didn't go well because there isn't any direct evidence tying Joe Biden, the president, the one who would have to be accused of bribery, treason, or high crimes or misdemeanors, uh, to any of Hunter Biden's considerable uh, considerable substance abuse addled problems, which are real, but he's not the president. But game impeachment forward. As of now, there are a bunch of House Republicans who are out there on the airwaves saying, this is really dumb. This is a waste of time. I'm not supporting this. Uh, There's no evidence. At what point, at some point, Kevin McCarthy is going to have to decide whether to bring a real impeachment to the floor of the House. He's going to have to because if he survives a speaker and he can't do it, he'll be ousted if he survives that far. If he brings that vote and it fails, what does it mean? In shorthand, it looks like exoneration for Joe Biden. If he never brings it at all, what does that mean? In shorthand, it looks like exoneration for Joe Biden. Can he ever get to the point where Republicans actually think that there's enough evidence? Will they bite the bullet and say, we just need this for the election? We have to equalize impeachment between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Let's just let's just do it. He's not there yet, and it's not clear that he will be. Yeah, as it stands right now, the vote would definitely fail by a wide margin. Which would be an enormous political failure. Before the hearing was even over yesterday, there were a lot of comments from Republican aides, anonymous comments, saying, this hearing is a disaster. And Jamie Raskin, the top Democrat on the committee that held the hearing, said on CNN last night that a colleague, a Republican colleague, approached him on the floor during votes and said, that was so bad that I think Kevin McCarthy orchestrated it on purpose to sabotage impeachment because he doesn't want to have to deal with it. Well, there's an argument that McCarthy wanted to do that in the first place. McCarthy wanted to put an impeachment vote on the floor to begin with and sort of the parlor game political reporter 
sort of uh, gamesmanship of that move was like put it on the floor so that it fails, so that you can demonstrate to everybody there's not support for that. That wasn't good enough. A caller earlier or a, somebody emailed to ask, why are they called extremists? For this reason, demonstrating to the entire house in the country that there isn't support for this in the house was not good enough. They still demanded it. Open the inquiry or you're gone, Kevin. That's the dynamic in the house right now. Well, and he opened it, and then people like Matt Gates still said, "Well, you're just trying to you're just trying to play us, buy us off." Like, well, yeah, you're mad. At, what? This all doesn't bode well for the shutdown. But let's move on to some big antitrust news that dropped this week. The Federal Trade Commission and 17 state attorneys general are suing Amazon. This is a case about a set of unlawful tactics that Amazon has used to maintain its monopolies. Um, we note in the complaint both a set of anti-discounting tactics that Amazon uses to punish any seller or retailer that dares to discount, and ultimately these sets of tactics deter sellers and retailers from lowering prices and closes off an entire dimension of price competition. That's FTC Chair Lena Khan speaking on Bloomberg TV on Wednesday. Zoe, what's Amazon's argument against all of this? Yeah, I mean, basically what they're saying is like, you know, well, but people like this, right? In a statement um, from general counsel basically said, look, the lawsuit could lead to higher prices, fewer products from which to choose and slower deliveries. All the things one could argue that consumers have found so popular about Amazon, you know, like 40 percent of all online shopping happening through Amazon. What does this mean, Todd, this lawsuit mean for the future of Amazon's business model? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure uh, what it means. I guess we have to see how the case shakes out. I want to, by the way, shout out great reporting on this uh, over at uh, the great tech reporters at Motherboard Advice. They've, they've been all over the Amazon story for ages and ages. And, and I don't know exactly what it means for the future. It's certainly a big deal at this company that has dominated online retail. I mean, Zoe just said 40% of every dollar – Spent on retail is at Amazon. I mean, astronomical. Now, that by itself is not illegal. But right now, this case doesn't seek to break up Amazon. They're just speaking – they're just seeking um, – basically just seeking penalties. So that's important. I don't know – it's going to take years for this case to be adjudicated. If it got to a breakup, that would certainly have a major effect on how we shop online. If it were just a question of cash, how much cash do you have to charge – Amazon and Jeff Bezos, I know he's not the CEO anymore, but honestly, um, how much cash do you have to charge them to, for it to make a difference? In other words, so that it's not just a cost of doing business. Artie, obviously, as we're talking about all of this, Amazon's monopoly isn't new. Why has it taken this long for the FTC to step in? Well, I'm not an antitrust expert, but I understand that these cases are extremely complicated and tedious and like Todd said, take forever. For example, they have to argue over the turf, uh, that you want to say Amazon is a monopoly power and taking up too much of the marketplace, for example. You have to define what the marketplace is, and that's what the FTC has tried to done with its plaintiffs in the states, and Amazon is like, well, this marketplace is gerrymandered. And so that's the kind of lawyerly stuff that will be going down in court. And, and as for what, what you know, the, the idea is that companies like Walmart – should have a, a bigger slice of online retail, which is uh, upstart you know, Walmart. Yeah, <laughs> not, it's not incredibly compelling. But the, but the idea that people are getting ripped off by uh, too high prices is. And by the way, this, the suit alleges this this does impact consumers directly. Yes, 
Amazon says, well, this will raise prices. People get low prices on Amazon. The suit alleges that Amazon scours the internet. And if somebody who sells on Amazon offers a lower price somewhere else, not on Amazon, over on, you know, broomsanddustbins.com, then your brooms and dustbins on Amazon will not be featured, will not come up in search results, and will have their prices raised. The Hollywood writer strike is finally over. On Wednesday, the writers and studios finalized language for a tentative deal. The agreement comes after 150 days of striking. It includes a 5% minimum pay increase upon ratification of the contract, and it also includes protections against the use of artificial intelligence and a new residual pay structure based on viewership on streaming platforms. Writers Guild members have until October 7th to vote on the contract, a deal for actor striking with SAG-AFTRA is still under negotiation. Let's end in space. A NASA spacecraft carrying rocks and dirt from an asteroid has safely landed in Utah. The rocks are older than Earth. Scientists are hoping this sample will give us new information about the Earth's origins and the galaxy. Zoe, have you been paying attention to this story? I haven't, but I'm listening with like rapt ears and want to know more. <laughs> and now. you know who can answer that? Thank Todd's Willis. Why is everybody Todd? looking at me? Because you, 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 you know about this. You came right. in saying, I want to talk about this. Stick with me now. <clears throat> Origin spectral we interpretation. We only have three minutes till the end I of the show. I got you. Oh, but I, I know how to hit a post. Origin spectral interpretation resource identification security regolith explorer. You're losing everything. You're just Os- re- you're reading. Osiris Rex. Okay, all of that boils down to Osiris Rex. What a mission. Launched in 2016. Does one orbit, swings back right next to the Earth for a visit, but this is how it picks up speed. You use the Earth's gravity to slingshot that bad boy out to uh, beyond the orbit of Mars. Uh, 2018, it rendezvous with Bennu, which is this asteroid that's about a half a kilometer. You've seen it. It's kind of shaped like a top. It's fat in the middle and skinny at the top and the bottom. You can Google it. It's really cool. It's sort of like a loose collection of rocks and dust. And what scientists discovered is that this thing is not super solid. Once they came in contact with it, they discovered it was sort of like a celestial um, ball pit. You know, you jump in a ball pit and everything just kind of scoots out. Sort of what this thing is, held together by loose gravity. So that's 2018. It arrives at the asteroid. Then 2020 is the remarkable po- remarkable part. OSIRIS-REx goes down to the surface of this asteroid and deploys a foot, a pogo stick that punches into the asteroid itself, mm. vacuums up a bunch of regolith, which is dust and pebbles, asteroid material, takes it and puts it in a compartment, then launches that compartment all the way back to Earth. And it was just this week that that capsule streaked across the sky in the western United States and touched down beautifully next to a road in the desert, in the, in, uh, the deserts of Utah. They've already opened the outer shell, so they already got a look at some of this ancient... This is alien dust, okay? This is not... Familiar. This stuff is alien. Think about it. They retrieved asteroid dust and rocks. By the way, not the first time. Japan did it first. Let's give them props for that. Um, (laughs) And Osiris isn't done. It continues off for 2019 to rendezvous with another asteroid. And it's going to be a couple weeks. They're going to crack into the inner canister and they're going to get to spread this dust and rocks all over the scientific community on Earth so that we can study the origins of our very solar system. Space nerd Todd Swillick is Good the work, best. Todd. Thank you. And NASA. <laughs> Live for it. All right. We have uh, just a minute left. Uh, Zoe, really quickly, anything else that you are watching for this week 
or that uh, we missed here? I mean, like while we've been talking, you know, we're we're keeping an eye on Sean Fain, again, president of UAW, who just announced in the hour that 7,000 more workers are going on strike beginning at noon. Um, and so this strike is continuing and it's what, you know, we're going to keep watching in the Midwest as well as, I guess, you know, whatever's happening with Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey because we can't <laughs> get enough of that. I'm glad we got that in the hour as well, Artie. I'll be following the government shutdown and the impeachment. Will federal judge Tanya Chutkin gag Donald Trump? In the federal coup case, the government has made a motion to say that he has to stop intimidating witnesses, judges, prosecutors. He has to stop inciting against them and poisoning the jury pool. She hasn't ruled on that yet, and it'll be very important. And it'll be important for the election, too, because Donald Trump will claim being a victim and having his First Amendment rights violated. I do not want to make light of the government shutdown. Will I be able to see the pandas on Sunday at the zoo? Probably not, I think. Mm. That's the day the shutdown starts. Right. My thanks this week go to Zoe Clark, political director at Michigan Radio and co-host of It's Just Politics from Vice News, deputy bureau chief and host of Breaking the Vote, Todd Zwillick, and HuffPost reporter Artie Delaney. Thank you all for joining us today. Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup, we remember a baseball great. Brooks Robinson passed away on Tuesday. He was the third baseman for the Baltimore Orioles for 23 years. He was known as the human vacuum cleaner for his ability to catch seemingly everything thrown in his direction. He was elected to the Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility. A lifelong ambassador of the game, Robinson later became known as Mr. Oriole for his long affiliation with the O's. All of this as the Orioles head to the playoffs for the first time since 2016. Brooks Robinson was 86. We've got a lot more of the News Roundup after this short break. Stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from NYU Stern. What makes a good leader great? It's your own ambition, coupled with the support you need to take that next great leap. With NYU Stern's Executive MBA program in Washington, D.C., that's what you get. A robust curriculum balanced with convenience. Classes held one Friday, Saturday, Sunday a month in downtown D.C. Be open to excellence. Search NYU Stern EMBA in D.C. for more information. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. We've got a lot to get into, so let's jump to the global edition of the News Roundup. Coming up this hour, the latest on the war in Ukraine, a U.S. soldier is freed from North Korea, and panda diplomacy. It's a full house in the 1A studio this week, so let's get started right away. David Rennie is the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. David, it's nice to have you here in Washington with us. It's uh, not online. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Joyce Cottom is senior news editor at Al Monitor. She writes the China Middle East Briefing Newsletter. Welcome, Joyce. Great to be here. And Indira Lakshmanan, global enterprise editor at the AP. Indira, always good to have you here. Thanks. 
Let's start off talking about Ukraine. You remember, you may remember that Ukrainian special forces claimed they killed Viktor Sokolov, the commander of Russia's Black Sea Fleet. Well, Russia released a video of Sokolov this week. It's unclear when it was recorded. What happened to us? Nothing happened to us. Life goes on. The Black Sea Fleet confidently and successfully carries out the tasks assigned to it by the command. Surface forces, submarine forces, naval, aviation, and coastal troops are successfully completing tasks. You know that the exploits of our Marines practically dominate the news of central television. Indira, we know disinformation is part of war. What are intelligence analysts making of this? Do we know if he's still alive? Look, I mean, the initial reports that Ukraine made about killing 34 officers in this strike um, deep behind enemy lines in the Black Sea um, was certainly very impressive from Ukraine's point of view and that they would have killed the admiral who was the commander as well. If he's not dead, it certainly calls into question Ukrainian intelligence, but it doesn't diminish in any way the significant impacts of that strike. Number one, that they were able to, you know, strike um, in Sevastopol and really affect the Russia's uh, Black Sea fleet. Um, secondly, that they are, this obviously helps them, Ukraine, with trying to do grain exports, which are critical for Ukraine's economy. Um, there's also the whole question of Ukraine supposedly having used UK law long-range missiles, these uh, storm shadow missiles, which is a sort of precursor to these missiles that they've asked the U.S. for and that Joe Biden has now promised them, the attackums, which are even longer range than the storm shadow and would allow them to hit supply lines, railroad, command and control behind Russia's front line. So all of those things remain constant whether or not um, Sokolov himself is dead. You're right that Russia has put out videos of Sokolov, supposedly of Sokolov, but they've been strange videos. In one of them, he was silent in a supposed Zoom call, um, you know, while the foreign minister was talking. In another one, he looked like he was propped up in a chair with a pillow behind him. And some people said that perhaps he's in a hospital bed. Um, so it's not entirely clear whether these videos are authentic or, you know, what may be the case here. But I think the bottom line is, regardless of whether he's alive or dead, the Ukrainian strike on Russia's Black Sea fleet is very significant. And when we talk about that Black Sea fleet, what does that mean for Russia's control of the Black Sea and the trade that flows through it broadly, Joyce, if Sokolov is dead? I mean, we're still waiting for proof, right? Uh, Naila, as Indira said, we we don't, the Ukrainians have one narrative, the Russians have a different narrative. But as you've mentioned, if he is dead, if the strike actually happened and hit commanders on the Black Sea, it is a sizable uh, blow to Russia, perhaps the biggest since uh, the sinking of the uh, fleet flagship. So uh, that's one dimension uh, to it. But it also, I mean, it it disrupts, it goes into the heart of the uh, command, military command structure uh, in that area. We are seeing more Ukrainian focus on Crimea, um, I think for two reasons. Obviously, the symbolic um, meaning of the territory that uh, Russia annexed. And then uh, as a domestic hub, as a logistical hub uh, for Russia to uh, sustain its uh, its presence in the areas it took since, uh, since the war. Uh, 
But also, I mean, if it really hit a commander's meeting, that's a huge, huge intelligence coup by uh, by the Ukrainians. To Joyce's point about strategy, David, do we know whether the Ukrainian focus on the Black Sea might be an advanced measure so their forces could eventually retake the Crimean Peninsula, which we should remind everyone Russia annexed in 2014? I think there's several reasons why Ukraine wants to keep the pressure on the Black Sea fleet. You're absolutely right that ultimately the goal uh, for the Ukrainian leadership is to try one day to take back Crimea. I think there's less evidence that, say, every European government thinks that's realistic. Maybe that's for a long time in the future. But if you just imagine the map, the Black Sea, this extraordinary kind of sea completely surrounded by land with one narrow exit uh, controlled by Turkey through the Bosphorus, that is Ukraine's route to the outside world. And as Joyce Indra say, you know, Ukraine, this massive major agricultural uh, grain exporter, if they can't get ships out through the Black Sea, then they're reduced to very, very much more complicated and expensive land routes. And remember how the Russians basically cancelled the deal that was allowing safe passage of cargo ships full of grain to go out. So then the, the Ukrainians have been trying to come up with another route that basically hugs the Ukrainian coastline. But if the Russian Navy had complete control over the Black Sea, even that route out to the outside world wouldn't be safe. So they have actually, with much smaller forces, basically with drones and missiles, they have actually succeeded in keeping the might of the Russian Navy out of the northwest corner of the Black Sea, away from Ukraine's coasts. And that is a kind of an extraordinary achievement when, when what's happening on land is so deadlocked. Actually, Ukraine's record of using their much smaller forces in very smart ways at sea is looking pretty impressive. David, to your point about the fact that some European countries may or may not see retaking Crimea as a realistic goal here, I wanted to ask you about aid, uh, because of course this relates to the longevity of the war and what the U.S. might or might not be prepared to do. And this has been a lightning rod issue as some Republicans, especially as we talk about the government shutdown, this has been a big part of this. You've been on the Hill this week. What are lawmakers telling you about ongoing support for Ukraine? I have to say it's been a real surprise for me. So this is my first time back in Washington, D.C., where I used to be posted. My first time back in four years. And I was coming to basically talk about U.S.-China. But I was there for, you know, to watch members of the Senate, members of the House actually going off and voting and debating how much Ukraine money might be put into some of these you know, continuing resolutions to try and keep the government open. What was very clear in off-the-record conversations with members of the Senate and the House is that even the most pro-Ukrainian don't actually have any confidence that you can get more than maybe one more big vote for Ukraine through this side of the next presidential elections. And that, for me, was a real sort of eye-opener, that they are so conscious of the power of the kind of more isolationist tendency, perhaps on the right in the House. And so I think that allies around the world are looking at what is happening in America and realizing that maybe much sooner than people had expected, the American Congress's ability to keep sending significant financial aid to Ukraine is really, really kind of close to the end of that road. And then then all the attention is on, you know, would the Europeans be able to stand up in the absence of America? You know, there's a lot of support for Ukraine morally in Europe, and actually some European governments much tougher on supporting Ukraine. But in the absence of real American help, I don't think Europe on its own is going gonna, is gonna to be there. And there's a lot of moral support in Europe. What about actual support from the UK in terms of what are thinking, what is the feeling in the UK right now about support for Ukraine? 
So public opinion is pretty amazing. You know, you go around small towns and villages in the UK and you get a Ukrainian flag flying outside the tea house, outside the local town hall. That is real. That is not being orchestrated by kind of high up politicians. Um, you know, you're seeing governments like France, very important government. You know, Emmanuel Macron initially very keen not to humiliate the Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Now so much more robust in defense of Ukraine, saying that Ukraine must have a pathway to European Union membership. So actually, you know, if you want to be optimistic, I had not expected Western unity to look as solid as it still does now. And European unity, given that Europe is paying a very high price in energy prices, in refugees, in European cities, it's looking better than I had hoped. But I think if America fails to keep delivering those high-end weapons and very large amounts of money, I don't know that Europeans on their own will be willing to keep this war going forever. So then I think you'll start seeing lots of pressure on the Ukrainians to maybe go to the table and take whatever peace deal they can get. Indira, we just have a few minutes before we go to the break, but what, how does that, can you weigh in about American public sentiment on support for the war? Yeah, there's a new ABC Washington Post poll out this week that shows that four in 10 Americans have questions about the support for Ukraine. Um, what and this, that's up from what it was before. Yes, it is up, but it's also largely along partisan lines. It's more Republicans and GOP-leaning independents who are 58% opposed to it, whereas Democrats, for the most part, and and Democrat-leaning um, independents are still in favor. Look, I mean, I think it's true that the United States has given more aid to Ukraine than anyone else, $60 billion in aid, and $40 billion of that was direct military assistance. I think that as the U.S. election heats up, you're going to hear more people like Trump and DeSantis saying, take down the funding. Whereas in Congress right now, you still have strong support for Ukraine with Mitch McConnell, um, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, McCall, and others. In Congress, still strong. In the primaries, not so much. To North Korea. The Pentagon says the American soldier who ran across the heavily fortified border between South and North Korea in July has now returned to the U.S. Video from the San Antonio TV station KSAT showed Travis King exiting a plane in the early hours of Thursday morning. Joyce, can we backtrack here? On Tuesday, North Korea abruptly announced that it would expel private Travis King. Do we know why he was released so suddenly? It's a very interesting case. It's one that we've covered uh, on the show two months ago when he was he dashed across that border. What this tells us, uh, Naila, is it's a really rare diplomatic breakthrough in a very strange relationship between the U.S. and uh, North Korea. Uh, what we know is Sweden... Uh, and China helped facilitate his release. He was uh, he went to China first, then he was flown, as you've mentioned, to uh, to Texas. Um, reading through, uh, you know, the tea leaves here. This is n not exactly how North Korea usually behaves with. Uh, U.S. Uh, citizens. During the Cold War, they usually paraded on TV, uh, you know, just to spell anti-American propaganda. Uh, this is different. Uh, what could be happening is they've realized he's not exactly a high-value asset. Uh, he was under duress and uh, uh, had, uh, you know, stress uh, issues when he, when he crossed uh, that border. He's now undergoing the mental evaluation in Texas. Still, though, I 
I think this is this is a good diplomatic breakthrough in uh, in this uh, relationship. To your point about China on Thursday, Mao Ning, spokesperson for China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, addressed King's release. Upon the request from the DPRK side and the U.S. side, China provided necessary assistance out of humanitarian consideration. David, to the point of this possible diplomatic opening, it's interesting the role China played here. Yeah, I don't think we should read too much into it. I think essentially it didn't suit any of these players to keep poor Travis King in North Korea. You know, it could be simply that he's African-American and that just wasn't an attractive propaganda target for them because it's an intensely racist uh, kind of uh, state in North Korea. It doesn't suit them. And China basically facilitated this kind of Cold War sort of movie style spy swap. I mean, we, we described these extraordinary scenes where the Swedes who uh, look after American diplomatic interests in North Korea uh, as a neutral nation, they brought a convoy to this bridge, which I've actually crossed myself at Dandong, which is the border between North Korea and China. You have the Yalu River. You have a half br- bridge that was bombed out during the war, still the kind of skeleton of that met by the American ambassador in person, the American defense attache, a brigadier general, who took the private into military custody, and then they took him out on a flight, as, as uh, Joyce says. I think that this just was uh, the Chinese couldn't see why they wouldn't be of assistance in this. But, but fundamentally, North Korea just didn't see an interest in keeping this guy. And maybe there's a depressing reason, which is that North Korea usually holds hostages when it wants to start talks. Maybe North Korea is just not in the mood to start talks because their focus is much more on launching missiles and showing how advanced their weapons exactly. program I mean, is. And they do have a nuclear arsenal now, something that they didn't have in the Cold War. Back to King, as you said, he was taken to Brook Army Medical Center in Texas. He's undergoing an array of medical and psychological assessments and debriefings. He's also going to chance to get he's going to get a chance to meet with his family, but he has been labeled AWOL by the military. What could he be facing here? I I was just going to say, I think that while he wasn't labeled a deserter, things didn't look good for him even before he ran over the border, which was part of the reason, apparently, that he ran. He had already served time in South Korea in a barracks for assault charges, and he was being, um, you know, sent back to Fort Bliss, Texas, where he was apparently going to face potential additionally additional disciplinary charges and a discharge, perhaps dishonorable. So things were looking bad for him when he escaped from the the airport um, in South Korea and joined this um, tourist tour to Panmunjom to the DMZ and then ran across the border. So I think it's very likely, I mean, legal experts say that after he is going to go through medical and psychological examinations and any kind of intelligence briefings, although it's very unlikely that there's much to debrief him on, that he was given any access to anything at all. Um, But legal experts say that it's very likely that he will be court-martialed. I don't think he has any real leverage to use with the United States side because, you know, what would he have seen that he could use? And let's remember that the last time there was an active-duty U.S. soldier who was returned to the U.S. by an adversary was Bo Bergdahl, remember him, who had walked off from his army post in Afghanistan back in 2009, was abducted by the Taliban, and then he was held captive and badly tortured for five years. Um, When he was finally um, sent back 
back to the United States from the Taliban. He was charged with desertion and、um, misbehavior before the enemy, and he pleaded guilty. It was only this year that a judge vacated his conviction. So I think it's very likely that we're looking at court-martialing and perhaps worse for for Travis King. On Tuesday, Israel's tourism minister Hayim Katz. Traveled to Saudi Arabia to attend a United Nations conference. Katz took part in a UN World Tourism Organization event on the two-day trip. The visit is the first public trip to the country by an Israeli cabinet member. Joyce, how significant is this visit? It's very significant, Naila, for、uh, three reasons. As you've mentioned, this is the first visit for an Israeli cabinet、uh, member to Saudi to attend a UN conference on tourism. Uh, but the two countries don't have diplomatic relations, so that's one. The second is he flew from Israel to Saudi, so that's、um, also significant. Third, it happened just as a Saudi envoy was in the West Bank,、uh, received、uh, you know red carpet、uh, reception, meeting the Palestinians. So we're seeing careful balancing for the Saudis here as they try to go for normalization with Israel. But also get、um, uh, you know points for the Palestinians in that they're also looking for some brownies、uh, from the U.S. You know as it relates to a defense pact,、uh, security assurances, and、uh, help in their civilian nuclear program. So it's 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 a different Middle East. It's changed times, and you know sitting here seven years ago, I would tell you, oh Saudi, uh, uh, you know Israeli normalization. It's not even、uh, in the picture, but that's quickly changing, and、uh, the Biden administration is has prioritized it and is pushing for it. I can tell you, sitting in Beijing, this is looks like part of when I was, you know, the, the world looks like it is moving from very fixed ideological camps or you know sectarian religious camps to a world, particularly of middle powers、uh, like Saudi Arabia, like Turkey, like others. Who are just intensely focused on their own national interests and balancing where they can. So, you know, as as Joy says, it used to be unthinkable that these kind of rapprochement between Israel and the Saudis would happen. But suddenly, we're in a world where the Saudis can see the Iranian nuclear program potentially getting much more threatening. So they're reaching out to the Americans whilst reaching out to the Chinese. Which, according to the rule book, you're not meant to be able to reach out to both at the same time.、But、you have all of these middle powers deciding that the rule book no longer applies. That this is a dangerous world. And these countries are going to seek their interests where they can by balancing in every direction and breaking all kinds of kind of taboos that we thought limited the kind of relationships that would be seen in places like the Middle East. Right. And to that point, on Monday, Saudi Arabia announced it would expand its nuclear energy program and allow greater oversight on its activities by the International Atomic Energy Agency. That's the UN's nuclear watchdog agency. The country will abide by stricter safeguards and checks from the agency. Indira, what does this look like? How significant a role does the IAEA play in monitoring nuclear activities? Yeah, this is a very big deal. The IAEA was, of course, a key,、um, a fulcrum to the Iran nuclear deal, as one example. And IAEA monitoring is crucial. It, it, it's everything from experts going in to cameras that are on at all times. The Saudi Arabian program, though, is a nascent nuclear program that, until now, has been monitored under a lower level of monitoring called the small, the small quantities. 
protocol. And it's interesting because the head of the IAEA, Rafael Grossi, has called the entire SQP program a weakness in global nonproliferation regime. And he has basically come out against it. Now, what's interesting is that Riyadh can now say, well, we're voluntarily coming out of the small quantities protocol and we're letting you monitor us under the whole comprehensive safeguards agreement, which sounds great, but it also may be simply because they were going to introduce nuclear material into their first nuclear reactor anyway, a low-power research reactor in Riyadh that is near completion. And so in so doing, that would void the small quantities protocol and its exemptions from regular safeguards in any case. So they can make this look like, oh, we're being so transparent. At the same time, it's very likely they wouldn't have been able to stay in that protocol. Some analysts have said that this also may be part of this um, Saudi-Israeli rapprochement and that the Israelis almost certainly demanded this, that the Saudis be under higher IAEA monitoring. And don't forget that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has said for years, he's been very open, saying that Saudi Arabia will develop nuclear weapons if Iran, their big enemy and rival in the region, does. So, you know, this is a balancing act with Israel, with Iran, um, and it's, it's a very interesting case to watch. It's the Global News Roundup. We're with The Economist, David Rennie, Al Monitors, Joyce Karam, and the AP's Indira Lakshmanan. I'm Nyla Budu from Axios. You're listening to 1A. David, one last point here is we just want to wrap up as we're talking about Saudi Arabia, these nuclear capabilities, and as you're saying, sort of the shifting global order. How much of that is part of this? Absolutely. And, you know, let's not forget that there is credible, uh, at least sort of retired senior uh, Israeli intelligence some NATO intelligence officials who think that Saudi Arabia already owns a nuclear weapon that the Pakistanis built for them, that Saudis paid for. We saw this coming up about a decade ago, that there's a sort of the, the idea is that there's a Saudi bomb sitting in a bunker in Pakistan that can be delivered like kind of Amazon Prime if they need it, because the Saudis, we do know the Saudis paid an enormous amount of money for the Pakistani nuclear program. But, you know, the consequences of all this are very, very complex because as the Iranians developed their nuclear bomb, just as the Saudis were getting closer and closer to the Chinese, we suddenly see them also wanting to firm up their defense pact with the Americans. And that's all about nuclear weapons and the threat of Iran. So you can see the, the world is becoming so much more fragmented, so much less orderly, much more dangerous in many ways. And the big picture is if more and more of these countries are getting nuclear weapons, the North Koreans, the Iranians, the Saudis, that is a very scary world. And I would just follow up on that, that the Saudis are hedging pretty well uh, on this one. They're coming to the Americans and saying, we want you to sponsor a civilian nuclear program. If you don't, we're going to go to the Chinese who are already saying we're going to actually put a bit for Saudi Arabia. So this, uh, you know, great power rivalry is hugely impacting uh, the Middle East. And uh, the Saudis at this point in time, they know what they want and they're going for it. Let's move on to the latest in Niger and its former colonizer, France. France will pull troops out of the West African nation two months after a coup that overthrew the president. France has kept 1,500 troops in Niger and had refused requests to leave from the new administration, saying they didn't recognize the coup leaders as legitimate. Joyce, as we think about the fact that French troops have previously been pushed out of Burkina Faso and Mali, Niger was seen by the U.S. and France as a remaining friendly base for counterterrorism efforts. How does this affect that? 
Well, not anymore. I think what we're seeing in in, uh, in Africa for France is several countries are ter- turning their back on uh, on the former uh, colonial power. It's really an end uh, of an era for uh, for the French power in uh, in the continent. Uh, I mean, Niger is just the latest. You've mentioned Burkina Faso. You've mentioned Mali. All countries where we've seen uh, uh, military coups, and then uh, the French uh, influence has declined uh, thereafter. Uh, the concern here for the Americans is the jihadi violence that could, uh, uh, you know, come to Africa's uh, Sahel uh, uh, region. Uh, but for Macron, uh, for the French president Emmanuel Macron, there is a bigger, uh, there is a bigger question on uh, French influence in, in the continent. Right now, his, his uh, relationship is even bad with a country like uh, Morocco that actually rejected French aid uh, after uh, after the earthquake. So uh, recalibration, uh, I would say, needs to be done in the in the Elysee with the with the French, uh, uh, you know, foreign policy to see how they can restore uh, their influence in Africa at a time that we see Russian and Chinese influence on the rise in the continent. And when we think about in Mali, another country in the Sahel region, violence in northern parts of that country has doubled since UN peacekeepers withdrew last month. The UN began its withdrawal of 17,000 peacekeepers last month after a decade fighting ISIS and other terrorist groups. Indira, the situation in Timbuktu has been described as a siege with thousands of people cut off from the rest of the world. What's the situation there? Yeah, it is terrible. And um, I just want to say it's not just Timbuktu um, that is experiencing this cutoff and this siege. But as Joyce was alluding, this region in the Sahel, and for our listeners, that's the region that is between um, the Sahara and sub-Saharan Africa, the savannas. So it's that whole strip of countries. Um, That region accounted for more than 40% of extremist deaths in the world in 20. 2022. And remember, the Sahel is also a region that has had seven coups in the last three years. So part of the reason that France is getting out also is not just the anti-French sentiment, but also this coup in Niger that you know, toppled a democratically elected leader. Mali has had two coups, Burkina Faso as well. And, you know, you see that with France withdrawing 1,500 troops, for example, from Niger, there's a whole question about the 1,100 American forces that are based in Niger and the spread of extremist violence throughout this region. And again, the Sahel is suffering from extreme poverty. Four in 10 people in the Sahel are living in, you know, what the world can there's extreme poverty. Climate change is exacerbating drought and imperiling agriculture throughout this region. So I think we're in, unfortunately, for a very messy time. And all these new coups, by the way, just this week, there was an attempted um, coup in another Sahel country um, in Gabon. So, you know, this this region is a mess right now. And with UN troops out, with French troops leaving, um, the countries are going to have to, on their own, face jihadi violence in this vast expanse um, south of the Sahara Desert. And it's really scary. And it, it's not just within those countries. There's a global implication here as well. Exactly. 
In China, one of the nation's top military officials has seemingly vanished from the public eye. Defense Minister Li Shengfu is one of six military officials under President Xi Jinping. Li, along with eight other military officials, is under investigation for illegally acquiring military equipment, and he hasn't been seen in public for a month. David, is that why he's disappeared? Look, there's a, a tremendous amount of corruption in the Chinese military. And in some ways, the surprise is that after a decade of, of really high-level purges and general after general being taken down, we're still seeing at the very top people being taken down for corruption. Now, if you wanted to be charitable, you would say that this is a sign that Xi Jinping, the supreme leader, the party chief, is so strong that when he finds corruption at the top, he is willing to take it out, even though Li Shangfu, like the entire of the top leadership of the Chinese military, is basically now handpicked. Remember, Xi Jinping's been in power for over a decade now. Everyone at the top is his guy, handpicked for loyalty to him. So it is, at some level, intensely embarrassing that they are still uncovering high-level corruption. Part of this is because the Chinese military has been on a roll, just investing billions and billions of dollars in you know, new nuclear weapons, missiles. And when there's just money slushing through a system as opaque and sort of self-contained as the Chinese military, there's no surprise that there's going to be absolutely rampant corruption. Now, the charitable version is he's showing his strength by being willing to take out his own guy because he's showing that corruption is a big problem. But he's not the first minister we've seen disappear in recent weeks. And so, you know, there's the Oscar Wilde line about to lose one is misfortune, to lose two starts to look like carelessness. So the foreign minister, Qing Gang, he also disappeared for a month before we were told that, you know, he's just uh, unwell and resting. He's, you know, all sorts of extraordinary stories about what happened to him. But the problem is that he was also handpicked by Xi Jinping. And so at a minimum, Xi Jinping's judgment is clearly being called into question in elite circles in Beijing. The gossip in Beijing at every embassy dinner, every gathering of kind of the sort of the elites of Beijing is, you know, what is going on? Is this actually signs of real trouble at the top? Now, we don't see signs of like an imminent coup or revolution. I don't happen to think there's any signs of that. But at a minimum, Xi Jinping, the unbelievably self-confident, centralizing top leader, his hand-picked people are turning out to have feet of clay. And that is, at a minimum, exceedingly embarrassing for him. Do we know what happens when these people disappear? So they don't... What happens know, to them? Yeah. So, so China is not like Stalin's Russia, or, you know, even Putin's Russia. People don't fall out of hotel windows. People don't end up in the street with a bullet in their head in China. They just disappear into this secretive system of party-controlled discipline inspection. And they just, you know, they go off to elite prisons for former elite leaders where they, you know, they practice their calligraphy for the rest of their lives. But, you know, it doesn't kill and disappear people. But it's a ruthless system. And it does matter that Li Shangfu went down. It's in a small way, a boost for the Americans because the Americans had sanctioned him for buying weapons from Russia and that had been an obstacle to trying to have some meetings between the American military and the Chinese military. So a small upturn, if you're the Pentagon, is that the guy that they couldn't meet because they'd sanctioned him is now in a black hole somewhere, you know, uh, talking to his interrogators. But it isn't great uh, for Xi Jinping and it isn't great for the PLA's professionalism and readiness that we're seeing more turmoil at the top. David, earlier you were talking about sort of this reordering of the world and the fragmentation. And I wonder how much these kind of things make a difference with China positioning itself to be a leader of the, quote, global south. Can you explain a little bit more about what that term means and how this relates to that? The last year or so has been really clarifying about where China sees its kind of global interests. Things like the Ukraine war, China has been 
pleasantly surprised by how many countries in Africa or Latin America just aren't that fussed about the Ukraine war, certainly are extremely sceptical when Western governments say this is a moral cause, that right and wrong are in play here. That isn't playing well in the global south. China sees an opportunity to push back. China loves a world which looks more like the 19th century of powers balancing their interests. All the things we were talking about with Joyce and Indra about, you know, the Saudis balancing their interests, the Russians seeking advantage when there's a coup in Africa. China, although China likes stability, it hates instability. It likes a world where countries are absolutely focused on their interests and are trying to balance and work out who is strong, where the opportunities are. They hate a world one where the Americans say there are universal values like human rights and democracy and moral rights and wrongs. So China sees a tremendous opportunity to push this interests-only, zero-values rule. I mean, but even, I think a lot of it is about optics for China. For example, they've just hosted for four days uh, Syrian dictator Bashar uh, al-Assad. It was a huge fanfare. It was, uh, you know, roses. Uh, it was just a band, um, you know, receiving him. He went to multiple cities. But at the end of the day, they got, he got nothing out of it. There was no agreements. Uh, there was nothing set in stone. Same with the... Uh, they've offered to mediate between the Israelis and the Palestinians. So I think they have big ambitions. They have uh, uh, big aspirations to mediate and be rivaling the U.S. in uh, in the Middle East. But when, when the push comes to shove, uh, it does still feel that the U.S. is the main mediator on key issues in the region, whether it's the Iran nuclear file or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Indira, why are Armenians fleeing that region now that it's back in control of Azerbaijan? Right. This is the culmination of a very long-running story. So under the Soviet Union, both Azerbaijan and Armenia were members. They were Soviet republics. And Nagorno-Karabakh, which is this region um, that is majority Armenian, ethnically Armenian, um, was within the borders of Azerbaijan, but it was essentially an autonomous region during the Soviet times. Then in 1988, the Karabakh officials said, we want to join the Republic of Armenia because of the Armenian uh, you know, majority ethnic population. Population That caused this big fighting to break out just as the Soviet Union was crumbling in what was became the first Karabakh War. 30,000 people were killed in six years of fighting, and it only ended in 1994 when the Armenian side gained control. So flash forward to 2020. Um, in these intervening years, Nagorno-Karabakh was essentially running itself completely autonomously. They declared themselves a republic of Artsakh. They essentially had their own tax taxes, their own governance. Um, They weren't being run by Armenia or Azerbaijan. In 2020, Azerbaijan said enough with that and backed by Turkey, which is their historic ally, they reclaimed a third of the territory in this lightning attack in just a month and a half. And they only laid down their weapons in a Russian brokered ceasefire. This was critical because Russia was backing Armenia at the time and had been Armenia's backer that sort of kept this at a balance. Um, then now we have the situation where something that has not really been covered in 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 the writing about this but I think is fascinating is that the Armenian leader actually came out in support of Ukraine after the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine not 
a popular or maybe very savvy thing to do when your main backer in Nagorno-Karabakh is Russia. So this obviously really angered Putin. And when Azerbaijan came blowing back this year, oh, amazingly, Russia did not come to the support of Armenia this time. And so there was this very decisive victory by Azerbaijan. Russia essentially forced Armenia to give up on this. And all of the leaders of Nagorno-Karabakh have presented themselves for arrest, and they've declared that this uh, independent republic will cease to exist come January 1st, 2024, and 65% of the population has already fled into Armenia. Um, They're worried about ethnic cleansing, and it's a, you know, blowing up to be a real humanitarian crisis. Joyce, Karabakh is also located in this area crisscrossed with oil and gas pipelines where Russia, the U.S., Turkey, and Iran, as India has been saying, are competing for, for influence. What are the global implications here? Uh, no, for sure. I mean, it's an area, the Caucasus, uh, and it, it it's one where a lot of blood has been spilled. As Indira said, there is we have now a major refugee crisis of almost 65,000 that's spilled into uh, Armenia. But it's also one where Turkey sees an opportunity to, uh, to fulfill what they call a dream and uh, build a corridor that also uh, seeks to capitalize on the oil and gas um, uh, uh, you know, areas there connecting uh, Turkey to Azerbaijan to uh, Iran. Uh, so we'll see if that actually materializes. But for uh, the uh, the time being, uh, Ankara, Turkey and uh, Baku see an opportunity in a weakened Russia uh, to step in and uh, to take the area back from the Artsakh uh, separatists. And the offensive is more or less working for them. They've made major advances in the last uh, two weeks. Earlier this week, six young climate activists spoke at the European Court of Human Rights in a landmark climate change lawsuit brought against 32 European governments. The activists come from different parts of Portugal, ravaged by wildfires and heat waves. They're arguing European governments haven't done enough to prevent the devastating consequences of climate change. Jerry Liston is an attorney representing the activists. He's with the Global Legal Action Network, and he spoke with Al Jazeera. They're taking what is an unprecedented case in its scale uh, against all these countries, actually the most ever countries to appear before a court in any context uh, ever before, uh, because they're trying to compel them to do much more to reduce their emissions, which is what is necessary to safeguard their futures. A ruling in the case is expected in spring of next year. David, we've seen other climate change lawsuits filed in the U.S. What makes this unique? I mean, it's it's unique because the, the there is a legal kind of slender trail that could see a ruling in the European Court of Human Rights force national courts in theory to order governments to cut CO2 emissions. But I think, unfortunately, we need to be realistic. This is, you know, we should see this as on par with things like the school strikes that we've seen in countries. And this is, you know, a clever piece of activism to raise awareness. But governments are having to take very painful decisions is going to make life more expensive and less convenient for their voters. And we're seeing that in case after case, voters get very angry about that. So governments are treading as carefully as they can, you know, whether it's forcing people to stop buying gas-powered cars or change their gas boilers in Germany. The idea that a European court is going to, on behalf of some you know, perfectly worthy Portuguese kids, force governments to risk losing the next election by angering 
millions of their own voters is just not how the world works. So this is a very clever, clever piece of campaigning, but this isn't going to be how climate change is tackled. David, as you were in Washington, I feel like I have the perfect Beijing-Washington story for us to end on. After more than 50 years, Washington's pandas may be going away and maybe for good. The National Zoo's three pandas are set to return to China by December with the expiration of a three-year agreement with China's wildlife agency. Three other zoos that have Chinese pandas, Atlanta, San Diego, and Memphis, have either turned over their pandas or will see them return to China by the end of the year. So, Even though both sides say politics is not at play here, panda diplomacy is a thing, this panda return comes at a time of particular tension between the U.S. and China. Is there a door of possible return for these? It's 100% politics. So, you know, in the last couple of months, we've seen extraordinary nationalist kind of propaganda in China where people were complaining that some uh, very elderly pandas that frankly didn't look great, you know, an elderly panda can look pretty rough. And they were in Memphis Zoo. Now, actually, at some level, the Chinese vet said they're just old. But nationalists decided that Americans were mistreating Chinese pandas. We saw Chinese activists and campaign students going to this zoo in Memphis, calling out in Chinese, claiming to be able to film the pandas, looking and longing at hearing these Chinese voices. What I can tell you is that All of these Western zoos, whether it's in the US, in Australia, in the UK, that are about to lose their pandas. In Russia, we're told in China, images of happy pandas in the Moscow Zoo because they're rolling around in the beautiful... So the Russian pandas are fine. The Russian pandas are just fine. So I'm afraid there is a bit of politics involved here. So you're saying that the American pandas are being mistreated and the Russian ones are okay. That is the message from the Chinese propaganda machine. Okay, well... (laughs) I think we'll have to end on that. A big thank you to our panelists this hour. David Rennie is the Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist, co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. Joyce Cottam, Senior News Editor at Al Monitor. She writes the China Middle East Briefing Newsletter. And Indira Lakshmanan, Global Enterprise Editor at the Associated Press. Thanks to all of you for being in studio with me today. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Kellen Quigley. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Budu of Axios. Thanks for listening. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at StearnsAndFoster.com.